0: And today we're going to be looking at chapter 2. Now, Unfortunately, chapter 1 did not get recorded, so there is, uh, there's no way of going back uh, to that again. But uh, let me pray as I uh, begin to do this teaching and reading from God's Word uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that this is your Word. We know that All of these words that you've given to us have been breathed out by you and are useful and helpful for us to be prepared and to be trained and to grow in our understanding of who you are. So, Father, we pray that even with this book, as heavy as it may be, Lord, that it may be transformed into a book that we use. To glorify you and to understand your word and understand your love, understand your character. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified this morning by it. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Now, just go over some, some of the mechanics of the book of Lamentations is that as uh, the book itself is not called Lamentations in the Hebrew. It's one word, and the word is how. That's the title of, in the Hebrew, is how. And if you look at ver, the very first word of chapter 1, and the very first word of chapter 2, and the very first word of chapter 4, you'll see that word, how. And that's the word, how it begins, is how. It's like crying out lamenting. Uh, How can this be? Not why. That's one thing we've got to understand about the book of Lamentations, because all of us, things happen in our life, and we ask the very first question is why. But the book of Lamentations gives us the why very, very clearly, and over and over again. And we'll look over at that uh, soon. (coughs) Some other things, mechanics about it, it's, this is an acrostic, meaning that uh, every line, every verse in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 begin with a letter of the Greek, of the uh, Hebrew alphabet. So from A to Z, as you will see, that ch- verse 1 begins with Aleph and Bet and Gimel and Dalit, and it goes all the way to Tau at the end. And that's it's from A to Z, so er, there's uh twenty-two letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and so there are twenty-two verses in chapters one, two, four, and five. In chapter three, as we'll see next week, it's tripled. So there's three A's and three B's and three C's, so that there are there are uh that many corresponding or sixty-six uh verses there. So um, why did he? Why did the poet, or the poet very, very likely is the the prophet Jeremiah? Why would he do that? And scholars and people teach that it is. Some say for memorization. Some say for uh, the understanding of this is telling us and reaching the full scope of who God is and how God is presenting himself in during this time in how suffering is presented. So that every, every emotion, every sense and thought that is being exhibited and explained and, pro, and uh, presented is the full gamut. So as you could say, if you say use the term from east to west, from north to south, you think of that's the full span from coast to coast. That's a it's a the I, I, the technical term is a mirrorism. It's it it takes on the whole breadth of a, of of the subject. So, what Jeremiah is writing to us, or the poet is writing to us, or what God is showing us, is this full full scope of who God is and how He's dealing with Israel during this time. This book was written. Uh, it's called uh, It is a lament. Uh, it is a, a lament, is a complaint or a protest uh, to God. And he wrote it during uh, the time of and directly after the time of exile, right after 587, some people say 586 B.C., is when uh, the Babylonians destroyed, decimated uh, the, the Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, every identifiable Uh, item that would make Israel be Israel, was decimated. And so, last uh, message I gave was, uh, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Um, The reason for that was because Israel has always uh, given the impression, even though lip service at times, and though times of revival and times when they... They, there were many people who truly meant it. There are, there's a remnant there that really has been faithful to God through this time. But as a nation, as a whole, they just depended upon their strength as an army. They depended on them being who they were, the people of God. They depended upon the the, the temple. They depended upon all of their uh, rituals to, uh, be, uh, to identify themselves and to think of that being their glory, not God's glory, but their glory. And you'll see how uh, that identity is shattered uh, by this uh, uh, poetry that Jeremiah is, uh, has given to us, or the poet has given to us. So we see this book of a lament, and, and I've mentioned uh, before in some of the comments that I've uh, gleaned from folks uh, and scholars, uh, Michael Card... Uh, said this, uh, you might think lament is the opposite of praise, but it is not. Instead, lament is a path to praise. And I know people have mentioned that they liked that term. Instead, lament is a path to praise. As we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. One uh, person said, the theological significance of a lament is that it expresses a trust in God in the absence of any evidence that he is active or in our daily life. It's a protest. It's not denying God's sovereignty. It's not uh, denying that he exists. Rather, one commentator says, it assumes that God is sovereign and God is good. And on that foundation, is, it is bold to be able to hold up before God the kind of language that is in the book of Lamentations. Some of us do not would not feel and may not feel comfortable at the words that are being sp- expressed in this book. Sometimes they sound irreverent. But what God wants us to do is to lament. He wants us to bring ourselves to him. And that's what the over one-third of the book of Psalms, as I'd mentioned before, is a, a psalm of lament. There are laments through the entire Bible. We, we looked at laments uh, the last time Jesus lamented from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've seen in, in the writings of Paul that he goes back and he talks about laments. We see that in chapter 8 of the book of Romans I'd mentioned, that... Uh, the um, um, creation groans, and we groan. There's this lamenting going on. And what's so important about lamenting is that, as I gave that message, uh, one of the, the first messages that, that it did get recorded, is that to lament, you have to have faith. Faith is the important ingredient in learning how to lament. Lamenting seems like a negative thing, but it is a very strong way of praying. It is what the, There are so many, so many ways of lamenting that the Bible teaches us how to present our feelings, our concerns, our cares before God in a way that we may not feel comfortable, but as our children go to us and look at us and express in, in honesty how they are feeling... And, and, and appealing to us as parents, are you seeing what's going on? Do you see what my brother just did to me? Are you seeing what's happened to me? Look, see what's happening. And so, it is this kind of uh, uh, book, the book of Lamentations is all about. And I want us to uh, read it and to enjoy it, because I'm, like I've said, I don't know of many messages or books that are written about Lamentations, or never except for chapter 3, which we're going to look at next week, have I ever heard of a sermon from the book of Lamentations, unless it's upbeat, <laughs> and not talking about the nitty-gritty that is in, within the book. So we need to uh, understand that in Romans chapter 8, it, that's where I gave the very foundation for us to have the faith to understand what it means that when we are suffering or when we are confused, I use the term vertigo. Uh, somebody else used that term as well. Vertigo, it's like when you're, you're, you're dizzy, you're, you're off balance, when things are spinning around that you just can't focus on. Or I used the term the last time, the fog of war uh, that came out of the 60s uh, during the Vietnam War. There's a documentary about that. And it is that we are so caught up with the pieces and the moving parts of life or the things that are happening to us is that we just can't find a place to settle down. We're, we're grasping for something. where Everything's moving so fast that sometimes the trees get so high we can't see in front of us. And we become disil, we, disillusioned or Disoriented and we become confused, and we aren't thinking properly, so we don't respond properly, and we just start kind of blindly going through and walking through, and God wants us to be able to not do that. He gives us his word. He wants us to go to him, and he wants us to pray to him. He wants us to bring everything that we're feeling to him or or sensing in our thoughts in a reverent way, Not accusing God, but recognizing that God is a God who is our Father, and we need to bring these things to us. So that's what Jeremiah is talking about. And in Romans, he tells us this. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, these are the things that are going to cause us to have the fog of war, that are going to cause us to have vertigo. And then that's in verse 35 of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? If we faced any of these things, we could easily become paralyzed, easily become disoriented, easily uh, just run around without helter-skelter, without any kind of form or fashion in our lives. And so that's what I used as the very ground of our faith is because we're now looking back at this, which is a very different thing than looking ahead. Now that we have the cross, now that we have Christ, now that we have his finished work, now that we have his assurance of our salvation, which gives us our assurance of our salvation, because upon his complete and perfect work upon the cross, we do not need to wait for salvation So we need to wait for the day when it's complete, but we understand that it's right in our hands. It's right in our midst. It's a promise from God. It's a guarantee. It's being held for us in the hands of God. So we don't have to worry or think that God or trust God that He's going to do that for us. The cross, His death, His resurrection all give us that assurance. Now, why would He write a book like this? he he writes a book like this because he wants Israel he wants all of us to remember and that's what when when that's what the passover is about what do they do they they get together and they have a service and they have objects they have there's a taste and a feel there's a there's a sensation about that that feast that people get together and taste the herbs and and hear the songs and, and feel the 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 uh, the wandering and the and the, the the fear of of the angel of death coming upon them, but then being reminded of how gracious God was is by that after that animal was sacrificed and their and their doorposts were, were covered, that God saved them and God rescued them and God set them apart because of that. And so He wants them. He wants us to remember. He wants Israel to really remember because as not any un- different like God than us, <laughs> we forget. <laughs> we don't always remember. We don't always remember how much God loves us when we're in the fog of war. When we are in the fog of, of, of excitement, when we're in fog of prosperity, when we're in fog of joy. We become so intoxicated that we forget who we are. And we act differently or think differently. And and so what Jeremiah or the poet is wanting us to know and remember, I mean to, to do, is to remember these things with great clarity and being very vivid. This is the language which is so very vivid that sometimes it makes us cringe. It will make you cringe. And understanding and using the terms that is being used in the book of Lamentations can make us feel very uncomfortable because we don't talk like that. But yet God is giving us the privilege to be able to come to him even when we are paralyzed. When we find ourselves in a fetal position and can't move anywhere, but only can think about who God is, that's glorifying to God. That's the gift of faith that God has given to us. We don't have to do anything, we just have to remember who he is. And so this is what he has uh, given us in the book of Lamentations. So, we, we saw chapter 1, and chapter 1 is uh, broken up in different parts, and I'll just give you that real quickly again. We have a, 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 a narrator, and we see that he describes, and it's, it's uh, pretty much uh, we, Jeremiah or this poet, Uh, who is describing how lonely sits the city that was so full of people. And now how like a widow has she become. She was great among the nations. She was a princess among the provinces. Now she has become a slave. She weeps bitterly. Verse 2 says, she has No one to comfort her. And that is repeated over and over again. No one to comfort her. And so we see verses uh, 1 through uh, 11, this narrator talks about how this this transition happens, is that they were at a place of glory, and now that glory was not theirs, but it was God. And with God withdrawing, his presence, God withdrawing his, his, um, his protection upon them, as Romans 1 tells them tells us, that God gave them over. They wanted what they wanted, and God said, you got it. You be, want to be independent? You don't want to listen to my words? You don't want to do what I tell you to do? Well, then, this is what it's like to be without me. And so this is what's happening. So he says... In verse 4 of chapter 1, the roads to Zion mourn. None come for festival. All their gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her foes, verse 5, have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Because why? Here's the why. Because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Now what is, God, what is Jeremiah doing here, the poet's doing here? He's personifying He's personifying Israel as now taking the form of a woman, a widow, which, as we understand in the Bible, is, is, is a very sad place to be because there aren't, like we have today, the supports that they would have then. And so this is a person who's lost her loved one, lost her family, lost who she is, lost her identity, and now she's got nothing Everything has been taken away from her, and no one is helping her. Verse, uh, uh, verse 11, all her people groan as they search for bread. They tread their treasures for food to revive their strength. This is where uh, they're in appeal. Look, O Lord, see, for I am despised. And now the lady speaks, the personification, the Lady Zion. And and when I was um, um, reading newspaper back in March, when this uh, this right before I was starting, I was studying for this. I uh, was reading the paper, and it said that a, 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 a capital in the capital city in uh, Bangladesh, the uh, the shanty town. had a a massive fire and it burned down. So you could read that article and go on, wow, that's terrible. But But in it, I don't know if you can see this, but this is a picture of a woman standing in that desolation. And boy, if you want a thing to grab you, you can read it in print, but when you see this poor woman standing in this broken down, burnt out, desolate, decimated home, or the area that was home for so many it makes a big difference. It grabs you. That's what this book is about. This book is meant to grab us, is meant to give us uh, a sense of, of, of participation. It's like the parables. It's what the parables do. It's a story that comes, along by, comes alongside of a truth. And remember how the parable started, as we see in the Old Testament, when, when uh, Nathan the prophet runs up to David and tells a story about somebody who steals a, a lamb uh, from someone. And then all of a sudden, Nathan says, it's you. And David, before that, had responded with such anger and, and, and uh, uh, just wanted to revenge, wanted to get back. He, he so got caught up in that story, he responded. And then David, and then Nathan says, it's you. And that's what... That's what The poet in Jeremiah wants to do for us, wants us to to be able to be grabbed by this, not to forget this again. And realize that this is how deep the Lord wants us to talk to him about. These these kinds of deep emotions. Notice in verse 12, it is nothing to you all who pass by. Look, see, nobody's stopping, nobody's helping. And so the rest of the book is is uh, the rest of this chapter is, is going on from her perspective. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. The Lord is in the right, verse 18, for I have rebelled against his word. There's this confession. Jeremiah is saying in this, we, we, this is terrible what's happened to us. Now you've got to remember, there were almost two years... Two years, the Babylonians was choking the city of Jerusalem, cutting off their supplies, cutting off their water, cutting off everything. So after after more and more pressure, and slowly, day after day, they were just at a, such a weakened state that it was easy prey for the Babylonians to come in and just take over the city. So verse 21 says again, for the fifth time, they heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All of my enemies have heard my trouble, and this is the response people give her. They are glad that you have done it. They are glad that the Lord has dethroned the glory of of Israel. And then they end up in uh, uh, verses 20, 20, 21, 22, is sort of a prayer of not revenge but of justice. It's asking for God to be just. And so I think the, the sense of the word being thrown out so much today is looking for justice. My concern is what kind of justice people are looking for. What does that justice look like? Well, from the Bible's perspective, it's what God wants. It's the glory. It's the justice. It's the right and the wrong that God wants people to see and how to respond and how to live by living that kind of just life. So we go to chapter 2 now. And again, remember, it's a acrostic. Imagine, imagine it's kind of hard to go to every, word, every letter of the alphabet and be able to come up with a word that goes down so it, it, would, it would fit. I, I mean, the genius of this just of this writing of this poetry is, is, is phenomenal. And another part of the kind of a technical, which I'm not a technical person when it comes to literature or poetry, but there's a, there's a meter to poetry. You know, there's a rhythm that goes with poetry. And they're saying that this kind of rhythm in here, it's like a dirge. It's like a funeral dirge. It's almost like the rhythm is kind of a limping, which is, I thought was uh, pretty kind of, a kind of interesting. So let me take this in parts here now as we look at chapter 2. How, again, the word how, how the Lord is angry. He has, how the Lord, in his anger, excuse me, has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger, which is very important because you've read, as you read the Bible, there's that day coming, right? There's a day coming. Well, for Israel, this is the day. This is the day that you need to pay for what you've done. And here you see it is in chapter, I mean, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, and then also at the end of chapter 2, in verse 22, if you turn there, it says, on the day of the anger of the Lord. It's kind of like a bookend, kind of putting everything together, saying, this is what this is talking about. This is... The anger of the Lord. And some of us have a very difficult time thinking about being God, being angry, and the wrath of God. People don't like talking about the anger of God. People don't like discussing the wrath of God. But that's who He is. That's how He responds. It's because of being a just God. It's because of God's holiness. The purity of God's being and holiness demands justice and demands that he doesn't get to this he doesn't act like in a mood and saying i'm just disgusted with you god doesn't god is not subject to changing moods it's this holy god this holy judge this who comes across and says listen i have laid this all out for you for years and years and centuries upon prophet upon prophet and laid that out before you and told you what was going to happen now listen to uh what god said was going to happen if we if you have your bible you can turn with me to leviticus chapter 26 He says in verse 14, the punishment for disobedience... But if you, not, not listen, if you will not listen to me and will not do all of these commandments, if you spurn my judgments and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all of my commandments, but break my covenant. It's all about covenant. God deals with human beings in covenants. That's how the Bible tells us. God's a covenantal God, and he deals with us by covenants. He started in a covenant in the Garden of Eden with Adam, and he started did a covenant with his son in in the New Testament, the whole new covenant, and that's how God deals with us and has done with this several times throughout the Bible and refers, refers back to the covenant with Adam and the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with David and the covenant with Noah. He goes back all these times and talks about, I gave it out. I laid it out. I was very, very open with you. And he did it because of his love. Everybody's afraid of God's anger, but that's part of god who god is but this brings out god's love because he was a god who kept on sending out this language and kept on notifying israel over and over and over again he kept on being compassionate to them he kept on saving them as we looked at the the book of judges that cycle of of uh, sinning and then crying out and then repentance and then God raised the judge up and then it's and then then they were okay and then they then they sinned and then they 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 uh, did what they wanted to do and they cried out to God and then they repented and it was that cyclical uh, uh, work in in the book of Judges that this really is reminiscent of of Israel. What's what's what is it as a nation? It's like in its attitude toward the very character of God. Now, it's not saying that everybody was like that. And it's not saying that everybody in who's reading this has been rebellious. Not perfect, but that they are the remnant. You've heard that term, the remnant. These are the people of God. These are the people that love God. These are the people that desire to want to glorify God. But as a whole, the nation went its own way. The kings went their own way. And they made loyalties and covenant with other kings because they didn't trust in God's sovereignty and God's power and God's sufficient love for them and his ability to provide for them what they needed. So he says, If you spurn my ch- statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commands but break my covenant, this I will do, th- to th- I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. If And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield increase, and the trees of your land shall not yield fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your, and of your children, and destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, so that your road shall be deserted. And if this discipline you, you are not turned to me by walking contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you, and I shall ex- execute vengeance for the covenant." And you, if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among among you, and you shall be delivered into the land of enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall break your bread in a single oven and dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. In fury, I myself will discipline you sevenfold, and you shall eat the flesh of your sons." and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. This is difficult language, but this is a righteous God telling them, this is who I am, and if you love me, and you want to live according to my lifestyle, according to the, the life that I've commanded you by, to live by, and the statutes of how you are to approach me and worship me and live with me, then I will be alongside of you and your life will be completely different. But on the contrary, if you decide to go another way, realize that this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. And that's what Jeremiah is remembering. And bringing out so that everybody remembers, I've been here. He had a ministry of forty years, forty years to Israel. Forty years this man endured, over and over again, talking to people, preaching to people, going through different illustrations of wearing loincloth and doing other things of 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 showing that oh, we're, you know, put this loincloth on and then hide it and then go back and see it and it's rotten. Well, this is what's going to happen to Israel. All these. Uh, kind of object, object lessons, is uh, Jeremiah did this over and over and over again. He did it for 40 years. So he knows what he's had to say. He knows what everybody else has said. He knows what God has said in the past. So now these people are under a cloud. The, and if you look at different places, this, this cloud is a cloud of vengeance, a cloud, a dark cloud, a cloud of, cloud of God's Righteousness. And justice, and not mercy, but but coming with retribution back to them. Now how different it is when the cloud guided them in the, in the, in the uh, exile, right? In the wanderings, it was a cloud that they rejoiced in seeing. It was the cloud of God to guide them on their way when they were wandering. But now that cloud is gone. It is now this fog, this cloud, this ominous presence of God, or this this anger of God, this wrath of God and notice he says here, he cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel, and he has not remembered his footstool. Now remember what the Ark of the Covenant was. And remember that was very much a part of the worship and very much a part of being in the temple. And what did it say? That, that God ruled between the cherubim, the, the two angels on each side of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, and, and that was his footstool, right? Because that's what it was like. He was sitting on a throne and ruling. He says, Jeremiah says, he doesn't remember it. He's not remembering it. It's not that he doesn't remember it. It's just that now's not the time. It's like when Jesus comes. When he comes, he's not coming. When we see, him in the, when we see that great day when Jesus returns, sorry, it's too late. He's not coming as a Savior anymore. He's coming to judge. It's over. He's not, he, he's not saving anymore. His saving work is over. So that's why every knee will bow and every tongue confess whether they want to or not that Jesus is Lord because they have to because there's no doubt of who he is. And for those of us who ever see that rejoice knowing this is who we've been waiting for and hoping for and others are in fear and terror. And so he says in verse 2, The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all of the inhabitants of Jacob. And in his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down the ground in dishonor, the kingdom and its rules, rulers. Now notice all the verbs here that talks about God. There are about 30 different verbs here in these first several verses. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. It wasn't their might, it was God's might. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, a consuming. And what does the Bible teach is that God is a consuming fire. He has bent his bow like an enemy... And with his right hand set like a foe, he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. Can you believe that people are talking like this about God being an enemy this is what they're perceiving in their fog of war, in their time of disobedience, in their time now. Or the people who are, who are now the uh, the collateral damage, who are a part of this, are realizing and feeling like questioning. As we looked in Romans, who is this God? Is is God really here? Did God leave town? Did He leave us alone? Are is He gone? The Lord has become like an enemy and has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all the palaces. He has laid in ruins the strongholds. He has multiplied the daughter of Judah in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentations. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, like in it laid in ruins his meeting place. So the first five verses is all about. The city and the walls and the strength and the beauty and the glory and the, the, the ability to defend themselves, that's all been gone. All the walls are gone. All the military power is gone. All the, all, everything that was about them, that God set them up to be, he has taken away. They are now a nobody. They are now weak. They are now decimated. And so now he talks about something that is about the temple and says he's laid waste his booth like a garden the worship places are now destroyed not only is the city destroyed but the temple of God is destroyed now you remember in chapter six and seven of the book of Jeremiah is saying that that uh my uh this is the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord and Jeremiah kept on saying don't put your identity, and don't put all your eggs in that basket, because just don't hang on to the temple and think that God's going to save you. It's about me, it's not about the temple. You identify yourself with the temple, which is very important, because God is the very center of the people of God, like he is the very center, as Christ is who we are. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the very core of who we are. And if God does not go with us, as Moses said, then it is not good. If you do not leave with us, then we are a sorry sack of people. And so we need not only, uh, we need each other, but we need our Lord to come and to be with us and to know that he would never leave us nor forsake us. But this is what these people are feeling. And they're sensing it in a way for some, for some who are not the righteous, and for some who have not given their hearts to the Lord, and their hearts are not circumcised, as you've heard, if you've read any of the Old Testament, then this is a time of judgment. This is a time that God has forsaken them. This is God's wrath, and it's over with. They're done. There's no hope left. And for their others, the remnant, they're concerned, and worrying, and wondering, and, and, and Jeremiah is writing this so that they don't forget who they are. They don't forget what God has done for them, because it's like, I, is, as Nate was talking about, there's, and you've heard me say many times, there's that indicative and the imperative. The indicative is, what is it? What's the reality? What's the facts? And the facts are is that we're Christians, and if we're Christians, we can never lose our salvation. We never have to worry about God's presence in our life. But because we are, we are Christians, then Paul and Peter and the Bible teach us in the New Testament, now if you are this, if you are these kinds of people, right, in Colossians, you have a new identity in Christ, now live like this. Do this. So we have the indicative and the imperative. This is, there are people who would you, you can preach to, and they look at you and just and nothing clicks. Why? Because God hasn't changed their heart. But if God changes your heart and my heart, all of a sudden our ears pick up because when God says we should look like this and we should do this because if your identity is in Christ, then this is how you should live, then our hearts go, well, gee, I I really ought to try. This is how I should try to live my life. This is the example that I should do, do in my life. This is how I should identify myself by the fruit of the Spirit. And to put on these... This, this new, these new garments of righteousness that now are, uh, is actually the garments in, of righteousness of Christ. So what we're hear, hear, having here is that he is speaking to, t- uh, to two different people, yet he doesn't know who's all going to read this. As we preach this word, I have no idea who God is going to call and who God is not going to call. And that's what happens when we go out. It's this... It's this common call, this common grace call. It is a call to everyone. I don't know. It's like spreading the seeds. I don't know which ones are going to grow, and I don't know which ones aren't. But I do know that God's in control. And so God is the one who changes people's hearts. And so this is what Jeremiah is doing. He's doing this and writing to them to let those who, who, uh, who are out there saying, if you don't care now, then forget about it. But if you care now, then there's hope. And what to do with during this time when you find yourself so heartbroken and almost sick to your stomach and can't even breathe because what you've seen God do to you, bring it to the Lord. You'll hear this. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to God. He wants you to bring it to him. So he says, "He laid waste verse six, his booth like a garden, laid in ruins, his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festivals and Sabbath. In his fierce indignation, he has spurned a king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, which you and I know how holy it was, how, you know, the, only the high priest. And only the priests could go in to the temple and perform this, these acts of rituals and sacrifice. It was only designated for a group of men who were called by God through the Levites to be able to perform these kinds of duties. It was not to be uh, trampled on, yet... Many people did come in and want to do that. And, ha- and right here he talks, he's going to talk about this, is that now God has allowed people who were, who were unholy and unclean and people who had no right to be there are now trampling on everything that was sacred. And people can't understand this because, God, if it meant so much to you, how could you destroy your temple? How could you destroy your sanctuary? You went to such lengths to talk about how it was built and how it was to be holy and how it was to be separated from the rest of the world? And because you are my people, you are separated from the rest of the world. How could you do this? He has delivered, the rest of verse 7, he has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They, they raised a the clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. They walked in and says, this is it, we've arrived. We finally got our mission done. We have now desecrated this holy place. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused Rampart and the wall to lament, and they languished together. He gave, he, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her kings and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord." And he says again in Jeremiah that, they, that people are lying. And people are, are saying, these are prophets that I did not send to you. And you're listening to them. As they did with the temple of the Lord. He goes, don't count on the temple of the Lord. Don't trust in what these people are saying. And he says, he goes on in Jeremiah and, and, and other places. Oh yeah, in Proverbs 29. It says there, right, people quote this all the time, in, 20, in, in Proverbs 29:18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Well, it's not about having a vision like, oh, we need a vision for the church. or It's not anything like that. The word is revelation. In and, and one translation, where there is no revelation, where there is no word from God, the people cast off restraint. The people act like wild animals. And where there's no vision from God, and when there's no revelation from God, when there's no revelation from God in my life, when there's no revelation from God in your life, then what happens? Well, we talk about what the the, uh, Old Testament says, is that my people are going to have a famine. And there's a famine not with water and not with food, but with hearing my word. Because without the word of God transforming our life, without the Holy Spirit working through God's word, We will never know who God is. We will never understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. We will never be assured of our salvation. And this is what happens. He says, her prophets find no vision from God. And the elders of the daughter of Zion sit in the ground in silence, and they have thrown dust on their their heads and put on sackcloth, meaning this great mourning going on. And young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground, and so now we hear from, now we hear that was, that was a, 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 a reporter's view. That's somebody looking from the outside in, outside in. Now Jeremiah talks about how he feels about what's going on. And notice what he says, my, as he's called the weeping prophet, which it says many places in, in the book of Jeremiah. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground. He's throwing up there's nothing they're so hungry there's no food they have nothing to throw up but bile which is very sad because of the destruction of my of the daughter of my people because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city because it's been choked for two years They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as the life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you to compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? He doesn't have words to describe the awful, awful scene that he's seeing. What can I liken to you that I may Comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is vast as the sea. Now for a Jew, that's very big. That's what's used in the Bible to talk about who can understand the sea, who can understand the depths of the sea, or the widths of the sea, who can how wide it is and how deep it is, and you stand by the ocean, you just look and you go, wow. This is what he says here. Your ruin is so big that I can't even describe it. It is so bad. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you faults and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your sin. Don't worry about it. You're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. God loves us. We're the people of God. What can go wrong with us? What can he do to us? We've got the temple. We've got the city. We've got the law. We've got it all. We don't don't need to worry. God's not going to destroy us in spite of everything God has said. They have not exposed your sin. What does it say in Jeremiah? That God's people have sinned so much, now they don't even blush. They don't even know what it is to feel guilt. They don't even know what it is to feel shame. They're so desensitized. They've been living sin every day of their life. They have no revelation. They have no word from God, and they don't give a rip. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. They have seen for you oracles. They are false and misleading. All who pass along now, where, as this woman said, where are anybody going to stop and help me? And they said, yeah, we'll stop and help you. All who pass by now clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that you called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash your teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her up. Ah, this is the day we've longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which is so important because if, this is what Jeremiah is writing to them. If he has promised that if you... If you disobey him, and he will do what he says he's going to do, then if you love him and obey him, he will do what he says he's going to do. You can trust God for who he is. And that's what he wants him to say. If he has promised you blessing, then rejoice and hang on to that blessing. Hang on to that God, because that's who you need to hang on to. But if if you have been cursed by God, and if you're disobedient, he says... God is faithful. He told you this was going to happen. The Lord has done what he has purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. And so then now, uh, Jeremiah, the poet, now calls out Israel to do something. And he says, "The heart cry, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent. Bring your prayers, he says. Bring it to God. Let it fall down your face day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry it out in the night. I've been crying for 40 years. Join me now in my crying crying over your sin. Blessed are those who mourn in the Beatitudes. Not mourning over the death of somebody, but mourning over your sin. Mourning over the sin of the earth. Mourning over what's happened. Mourning over how sin affects our lives every day and the others around us. He says, pour out your heart like water before the presence. Lift up your hands for the lives of your children who are faint for hunger, or who faint for hunger at the head of every street. And that you're going to see something here now, which is not obvious unless you really look for it, is that the Lord has been capital letter and then lowercase, which is Adonai, which is the God who is, has the authority, and God who is king, and God who is protector. Now we're going to see in verse 21, we see all caps. Now they're appealing to God's personal name. He is calling out to those who know God personally. The the name of Yahweh, the covenantal name, the name of kessed love, that covenantal love. And he says, look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt this. Listen to the honesty here, which is uncomfortable. Lord, see, with whom have you dealt with us? We are your people, and this is how you deal with us this way? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, and children of their tender care? Is is humanity now something to be consumed? Is humanity now something to be discarded? Should priest and prophet those men, who were raised up by God to present the teachings of God, to speak for God, to do the rituals of God, to show the sacrifices, to keep those pure and faithful, to show what it is to sin, to show the ramifications of sin, show the consequences of sin, to show that death needs to atone for sin? Should these men be killed in the sanctuary, Lord? Do you know what you're doing, God? Have you ever asked God that? Have you ever felt like talking to God that way? Have you ever done it and saying, Lord, do you have it right? Are you doing the right thing? Have you read the right manual? Whoa, I'm over here. Are you not seeing me? Where are you, God, when we're going through all of this? But notice the honesty. Look at, look at the, uh, the ability to bring this graphic language to God. He is saying, do it. Jeremiah is saying, bring it. Bring it to the Lord. If you feel like that, bring it. Pray like that. Lord, I can't stand this. I hate this. I can't stand what's going on. I don't f- <laughs> Where are you? I don't understand what's going on. Sometimes, folks, it's because of sin in our life. Sometimes the Lord disciplines us very powerfully because of sin in our life. And sometimes it has no reason and nothing to do with sin in our life whatsoever. It's just life, it's just things that God allows to come in our life because of this fall. So there's disease, and there's alienation. Remember in the book of Genesis, the alienation, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, they alienated from each other. They were sh- shame and had guilt. They were alienated from, from themselves. The, the creation around them was alienated. They then hid from God because they f- feared Him. No more loved Him and couldn't wait for Him to walk near them in a, in a you know, metaphorical way. But they couldn't wait to have Him come. They hide from Him. The alienation just kept on going and going and going and getting worse. And so sometimes in our life, it is because of sin. And we need to be disciplined. And then there's other times when God brings this dark providence in our life. And we don't know why. We don't, we don't know why it's us. Sometimes I know people say, it's better you than me, which I find one of the most loving statements in the world. most kind thing to ever say to somebody um, What is God doing here? And God uses. We read this, do not despise, as as the writer of Hebrews tells us, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Because God is doing something in your life. If you're a follower of Christ, if I'm a follower of Christ, and this ain't easy, folks. I'm telling you, this is, for me, I'm talking like this, but this is what this book is telling us. And God is using this book to shake up the lives of some people and to encourage other people and bring them hope, because this is a God who has a relationship with them called the covenant. And that's why he's using that covenantal name, because he's appealing to that, remember my covenant with you. And we're going to look at that next week. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. Wow! Wow! And you have summoned as if this was a festival day, but my terrors are on every side. That's a a quote that's mentioned about four, five, six times in the book of uh, Jeremiah. No one escaped or survived. Those whom I have held, those whom I have raised, my enemy now has destroyed. Jeremiah, the poet, is writing to the people, is crying out to God. Knowing what God, knowing, and you read the book of Jeremiah as you read other prophets, there's great hope. There's great healing. There's great restoration. There's going to be the day that it seems like the Lord has forsaken us, but with Christ, we cannot be forsaken. We do not need to ever worry about God forsaking us. We do not need to worry about the wrath of God, because the Bible teaches us that those who are in Christ, there is no more condemnation. So we don't need to worry about the wrath of God. We don't have to worry about God being angry with us. But God does discipline us. That's the hard part. That's the hard part not to be discouraged. Because it may seem that God has running a, a, brought a dump truck into your house and has just let it all fall right out. And for some other people you look at and you're just, it's life and it's not easy, it's not perfect for them, but it just doesn't seem to be as difficult. And God brings these things in our life which is hard for us to understand. Some people don't want to think that God brings these things to us. But folks, if we do not understand the discipline of God, we don't understand who God is as our Father. We won't understand how much God loves us. As we discipline our children in a not as holy way, that's how God disciplines us and loves us. And what's happening here is that I put here, taking it personally. What we need to take personally here is this. Jeremiah is taking personal this suffering of himself and his people and bringing it before God, which I think is a matter of the church, of people gathering together, sharing our lives with one another, and taking it all personally to God, praying for one another not knowing all that we don't need to know the dirty laundry we don't need the dump truck but we need to know what we want what we can pray for because the worst thing a couple married couple can do is not speak to each other right when they start arguing it's a beginning right they're talking to one another may not be pretty but they're talking to someone but when you're silent that's not a good place to be and that's what Jeremiah is saying don't be silent God loves you. Don't be silent. Bring it to him because it will fester. And the psalmist writes, do not fret because it will only lead to evil. And so what God is telling us here is to bring it. Bring it on. Bring it to him. Gather together. Take it personally. Bring it to him. But the other thing I want us, and to do it for one another, which is, which is what this one another life is all about. And it talks about being with one another and sharing life with one another, which is done here in many ways, and I appreciate that. But this is the call by God to be intimately involved. And in maybe not everybody's life, but we should be concerned about praying for everybody. That's why we need to make sure that we, people understand that we need prayer and we don't understand what's going on when we just feel so isolated. For all of us, even the best of us feel that way. But the other thing I want us to take personally is this, is that if we do not understand the anger of God, if we do not understand the anger of God, we will never understand the love of God. So the anger of God and the wrath of God has to be who God is. We can't be afraid of telling people about the wrath of God. We don't need to hit them in the head with a hammer all the time with it, but we need to tell them that the wrath of God is Paul writes to us, he says, in in Colossians, right? And for such thing, the wrath of God is coming in chapter 3, he says. And in chapter chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, You were objects of wrath. Whether you want to know it or not, God didn't look at you and say, Man, you're really good. I could use you. No, he plucked us out of hell. Because we were objects of wrath. Because God is a God of wrath and we will never know the extravagant love, the beautiful mercy, the, ne- the un- never-ending compassion of God for us, his children, unless we understand what is the other side. Until we understand what the alternative is, how do we understand what love is? So don't be afraid of God's wrath, but know it. But notice how he's graphically putting in front of us. He's putting in front of us so deeply because he wants it to make us feel. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to embrace it. He wants to say, this is a God who you should fear. But run to him if you do, because there's a Savior named Jesus who paid it all for you. And you'll never have to worry about the anger or the wrath of God again. That's what the gospel is. And that's how we need to communicate it to one another. And that's how we need to make sure that we understand salvation. And we understand what this gospel is. Because the Bible says you need to be saved. And who are we saved from, people? Not from Satan. We're saved from God. That's who we need to worry about. When God, Jesus is here to save you from your sins. Why? Because if he doesn't, you've got to worry about God. That's what you have to worry about. So that's what this book is. I mean, we could have just glanced over and read it and saying, Oh, thank goodness I don't have to touch this thing. I just have to read it. Do I have to understand it? Oh, I like chapters three, chapter three, verses twenty three and on, because I love I love the, the, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. I love that one. That makes me that really juices me up, but not this thing. What does this do? This makes us real people. This just makes us human. This is what makes us who we are. These, we are the people of God. People who understand the, alter, the alternative of God's grace is God's wrath. And this is what they're experiencing. And they're, already, they're experiencing what has happened through their whole existence. It's not something that new. They've disobeyed God. They've cast God aside they're just now seeing it in living color who they really are. And so that's what this important book is about. I hope that we understand how we can bring our feelings and our, 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 our thoughts that are based upon what's going on in our life to God. I hope we embrace the understanding of God of, of of understanding the people's pain that, are, that we know, embracing them and knowing them. He wants us to know. He wants us to really feel it, like that woman in the picture. I could have read it and gone, wow, that's terrible. But when I embraced it in the picture, that made it such a hugely different. And that's what Jeremiah is doing for us in the book of Lamentations. So I pray that God has spoken to you in this book today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, so thankful, that we as objects of wrath are now objects of mercy. And we who were not your people are now your people. Father, we, we thank you for changing our hearts to be able to come to understand the gospel. As your word tells us that we cannot even call Jesus, Lord, without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, Lord, for us to be able to even say as a child that I understand this, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so, Lord, let us rejoice today that when we hear these words and we hear them explained, that, Lord, we rejoice in knowing that we are on the other side of this. That we understand the mercy. We understand your love. We understand what that took. We understand, Jesus, now that you took all of this and more upon yourself when you died upon the cross for us. You're, what you took for us, you're, you took our sin, and you took the full wrath of God. We will never experience that, though we deserve it. You took the full wrath of the Father upon yourself, and in a mysterious way, even though we know that on the other side there was the resurrection, just the experience of knowing that forsaken feeling, or that loneliness, or that, that guilt, or feeling that awful shame of guilt, Lord. That, the weight of everything as Jeremiah and more is speaking about here today. Let us rejoice in that death upon the cross that is for us. And Lord, I pray that as we remember this and as we think about this and as we read this book again and again and again, that, Lord, we will then, it would then help us to be deterred from, from disobeying you because of all that it could have been but is not, because of your grace and mercy. We are now fellows with, brothers with you, Jesus. We are fellow heirs with you, Jesus. We realize that you have secured a place for us, Jesus. We recognize how you are interceding for us. But yet, Lord, we understand that there is a discipline in our life that you bring upon us that sometimes we cannot fathom and we cannot understand and we do not know why. But we know that you are with us and we understand that if you gave us your Son, what else will you ever not give us? you will give us all of these other things that we need you have given us christ you have taken care of the biggest and the worst problem of our life and that is your wrath and so lord may we rejoice in knowing and hearing that again today and pray lord that this changes our hearts again and again and again to be so grateful that we give our lives in service to you to be the merc- to be the image of christ in the world in our church, in our homes, knowing that Lord, you have, you are working constantly to transform us into that image. So be with us now, Lord, as we leave here today, that you would give us that blessing of understanding the gospel in a new way. And pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Let me see.